it's um, surprising to you um, that we're already here at the fourth Sunday of Advent, and tomorrow is the first day of this winter solstice, or winter, and uh, four days from now we celebrate Christmas Eve, and 12 days from now, it's going to be 2016. And uh, time is flying by, um, but of course I'm getting ahead of myself. We're still at the fourth Sunday of Advent, the last Sunday before, um, before the, the real celebration of Christmas Eve, um, the traditional date in which we celebrate the birth of Christ. Uh, to help us in this season, we have um, been looking at the second chapter of Luke um, over the last three Sundays, and today we complete the second chapter. So I invite you, if you have the scripture with you, if you would just turn to the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 2, verse 40. Chapter 2 and verse 40. And I am going to go ahead and read the passage for us. So if I could ask you, in honor of God's word, if you would stand. Beginning in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey but then began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I think a good translation would be, we were worried sick about you. Verse 49, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and his stature and in favor with God and man. Go ahead and take your seats. Gracious Father in heaven, we um, bow our hearts before you and, and ask that you as our God, as our creator, as the one who made a choice to redeem us, who sustains life, who holds the keys to life and death. We ask, God, that you would feed your people um, what they need. We don't need um, food that doesn't satisfy or non-nutritious food. Lord, we need the truth. We need Christ. We need gospel. We need your love. We need to know your might, your power, and your wisdom. And so we pray that you would feed that immaterial part of us, our souls, our spirits, with your truth that we might worship you, that we might live for you, that we might be strengthened by you. Lord, I pray for um, just the hearts here this morning, everybody in a different place, with different struggles, different adversities, different journeys. I pray that um, you would minister to them as only you can by your grace, through your word. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our, our King, our Savior, our sacrifice. Amen. Well, uh, 
This is, as was already said, uh, the advent in which we celebrate the arrival of God's love. Uh, For those who might be new to the Christian tradition thing, advent is just a word we don't often use that means arrival or coming. And we talk about the arrival of God's love. Now, in one sense, um, it's not true that God's love arrived when Jesus came. Um, God has loved his people, we're told, from before time. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, God loved his people despite the fact that he knew that they would sin and rebel against him. So God has love has always been. And yet at the same time, when Christ was born and when he came and lived and died, the whole of his life, um, God displayed his love in the most full, unimaginable, incomprehensible way imaginable. Uh, imagine it. That is, that, that's, in one sense, God's love arrived in the fullness of its expression. But also, that Christ's coming is the only way that God could love us and make us his own forever. Like, apart from him coming, there is no love of God forever and ever. So all of God's love is tied to and expressed to us through Jesus Christ. And uh, along those same lines, uh, you, I, Adam, I really appreciate your... Um, your testimony. Um, actually, you probably should have just preached this sermon, you know, um, because some of the things he said is exactly um, the direction of this particular message. Um, the whole idea of, of adoption, like how, how, how far uh, is, a, is a couple willing to go to make, for all practical purposes, a stranger family um, from Arizona to Florida um, at, the, at great expense to make girls who were at one point strangers part of family. That whole adoption thing is a, is a, is a power, powerful uh, truth. It's a, it's a rich metaphor in scripture. And I know for most of you who know my family's history, you, you know that it's near the, dear to our heart, you know, that there was a young couple, late 60s, that is in 1960s, late 1960s, who made the journey from Squim to Spokane to take a stranger, little girl of eight weeks named Rosemary, um, with green eyes and make her their daughter. And a change happened at that point where she was no longer a part of the old family. She was part of that new family. And if you were to ask her who her parents are today, um, it's Runer and Levina Johnson. That's a, such an aspect of love to, 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 to reach at great expense and, and take a stranger and make them a son or a daughter. And that is, as I said, that there, that's, there's something deeply biblical about that because that's, that's the heart of God, to make the choice, as Adam said, to go the distance, to, 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 to claim at great expense strangers, orphans, those who are lost, like, like you and I, um, and, and bring them home and, and make us his family forever and ever and ever. And that, that of course, is what, what, what Christmas is all about, is, is God coming to us so that we might be his adopted children. Now, how far did he go? And again, Adam talked about this. Well, he came all the way. Like, part of the, the, the it, it's not the magic, it's the wonder of the incarnation, which is just a fancy word that means become flesh is that, that, that to retrieve us, to adopt us, um, God did not send angels. He didn't send chariots of fire. Like he showed up in person and joined himself to our nature, our skin, our bones, 
um, our human emotions, the limitations of what it means to be human. Like God, like God, in a sense, reduced himself to that limitation of humanity and joined himself to us. We oftentimes think about God sending his son to bring us home, but in another sense, um, God sent his son to join our humanity, to join us where we are. And that is, that is a, a wonder. Now, when you talk about the humanity of Jesus and the limitations of his humanity, people tend to get a little bit nervous, um, like you're diminishing um, the divinity of Jesus. Now, forgive me for getting a little bit theological here, but I just at least want to put this on proper footing before we take communion, is that from the earliest stages um, of Christian history, the scholars and church fathers recognized that the New and Old Testament teaches that the Messiah would be um, one person to have, that had two distinctive natures, fully God and fully man. And they understood that our salvation hinges on those two things being true, despite the fact that we cannot unravel or we cannot understand the mystery of how two things can fit together, like the finitude of humanity and the infinity of God. How both those can cohabitate in one person will forever be a mystery. Um, As I said, our salvation falls apart if those two things are not true. Um, But even more than that is the fact that, or maybe not more than that, in addition to that, it's the realization that we can't fully comprehend the, the, the magnificence of God's love until we understood he came the distance to wear our skin. Um, and not just wear our skin, but to take upon himself a body that could suffer, bleed, and die. Um, and suffer in any way, every way possible, like God came that far um, to adopt us into his family. So um, understanding the humanity of Jesus is not, is not actually to diminish. It's actually to amplify God's love. Like he became one with us. He, he joined himself to our nature and therefore knows us by way of experience. That is it, an awesome thought. And the particular passage that I just read, the, the humanity of Jesus kind of comes in um, to the forefront. We see him described as growing and increasing. Um, it's the, it's the, the only passage in the entire Bible that, that gives us a glimpse of what Jesus was like when he was in his boy years. You know, the Gospel of Matthew starts with the birth of Jesus and then fast-forwards to his ministry in his 30s. Gospel of Mark just skips the birth altogether and just starts with um, the introduction of Jesus by by John the Baptist. Uh, The Gospel of John goes way back in eternity and says, in the beginning was the Word, like back before time. That's how he introduces Jesus. But Luke, he's the only one that says Jesus was born, and here's a snapshot in his life, uh, when he was 12 years old. And this snapshot of his life, you see his humanity, something that, that, that I think we're supposed to connect to. Um, and we also sense in that humanity tension. Like you can't read that story and realize there's not some tension between Mother Mary and Jesus at this point, right? I mean, the, the story itself is, is in, in some respects comical, Right? Um, Mary and Joseph, as they have probably done since they were kids, they go up every year at Passover. And they go and they stay the seven days, which is typically the full celebration of Passover. And at the end of that time, they decide, hey, we're, it's time to head back to Nazareth. This is, that was their yearly pilgrimage. So they head, head back to Nazareth, the 90 or 100 miles north. And, um, you know, Jesus is 12 years old. He's, he's a, a, a junior high age kid. 
And they're traveling as a caravan, so they probably figure, as maybe you and I would, maybe he's back with Aunt Sally or Uncle Smith or whatever, and um, with his friends and walking along. And, and, well, get to the end of the first day, I would guess they probably sat down for dinner or something and realized, where's Jesus? Like, where the heck is Jesus? Jesus isn't here. Mother Mary going, I've lost Jesus. And realizing, you can just imagine if, if... you parents, have you ever left your kid anywhere? Ever? <laughs> I've gotten all the way home from church to realize I left my kid here. I only did is get in my car and come back thinking, how could I possibly lose my son? I'm the pastor. I'm not supposed to leave my kid here. I'm pretty sure at some point you're going to be allowed as a kid to sue your parents for the psychological damage that, that um, we did to them when we were young. But that's, that, that you can imagine, that. oh, man, she's, just, she's coming unglued. So they've, they've, they've went a day probably 20 miles. So what do they do? Well, got to turn around the car, the donkey, whatever, and go back to Jerusalem, spend another day, and let's just tell you the geography, it's all uphill. The first day, all downhill. Going back, all uphill. And the text tells us when when they get to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's a, a city, it takes them another day to actually find him. So by the time they find him, Jesus has been fending for himself For not one, not two, but three days. And when they find him, he's not doing what normal junior high age kids do. He's he's not playing airsoft war. He's not playing Xbox. He's actually in the temple, in the place that God had determined, this is where I will be worshipped. And there you find Jesus in the place where God is worshipped, the place God chose as the centerpiece for sacrifice and atonement. That's, that's where he is. That's where he wanted to be, not playing Tonka trucks. And Mary and Joseph, they see him. Of course, they marvel, like, this is where you chose to be? Now, I don't know if they had a little bit of uh, amnesia about some of the, you know, what the angels said he would be, but nevertheless, they marveled. And he's sitting in the midst of these scholars and teachers, and he's asking them questions, and they're listening to his questioning and dialogue, and they're perceiving that he has understanding and insight. Like, this kid is somewhat of a prodigy. But, now in, the, in, 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 a, in a parent situation, when you lose your child, or when a child does something that you perceive to be um, neglectful, who usually comes unglued first? The mom. That's what Mary tells him, right? She's like, my paraphrase, like... How could you do this to us? We were worried sick about you. Three days. There's kind of a, some tension, right? Between Mary and Jesus at this point. And Jesus like responds back, why were you looking for me? I'm supposed to be in my father's house. A little bit of tension there. No sin there. The idea is that Jesus is is becoming and sensing God's call and the purpose for his life. And in the transition from child to adult, there's going to inevitably be tension. There is in our families too. When your child senses God's call in his or her life and you're waiting for the right time and so forth, there, there can be tension. That doesn't mean it's sinful. It's just you find Jesus himself, if you will, developing in this direction of his call, his role, his mission in life. But the text is very clear. He submits himself and goes back to Nazareth for the next, what, 18 years. 
So here's this little glimpse. And like I said, I think it's a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus. Um, And you'll notice that at the beginning and the end of the story, as I just read it, you'll note each time, verse 40 and also 52, it alludes to, it doesn't allude to, it's explicit, that he's a growing person. And not just physically, but intellectually and, and so forth. It says, and the child grew and became strong and, and filled with wisdom. Verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. That is, he was growing as a, as a, as a, as a person who, with understanding and discernment and wedged right in between are the very first words in red. If you have um, one of those Bibles where Jesus' words are in red. And really, this is the first recorded words of Jesus in the Bible. Um, all of the rest of his words that are recorded begin when he's around 30. This is the one time he speaks um, before that, which is the age of 12. So wedged in between, you find this statement that has to do with who, his relationship with the Father. And then, you know, bookended by this um, expression, this description that he is growing and he's increasing in wisdom. What that tells us is that uh, Jesus was not born knowing 50 languages. Jesus was not born with an encyclopedic knowledge of all potentials or realities. Uh, Jesus was not somebody who was given an IQ of a quadrillion right out of the chute. He grew, just like we do. And that's part of, of, of him sharing our humanity, is that like, he had to go through the same process as we go through in terms of what it means to grow as a human. That's how close he is to our humanity. He's, he's, he's one of us. And, um, and in one sense, this passage points us forward, and it picks up the idea of who Jesus was and kind of anticipates more and more who he was going to... Um, who he already was but was becoming, his mission. You sense that almost like like it's growing in him. So it points us forward to to who he is. At the same time, it it gives us this picture of his humanity that he shares with us that should um, encourage us in 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 the sense that God knows our humanity and he knows us. There's particular ways in which he grows, I think, in this. Um, passage that we just read. One, repeated twice, he grows in wisdom. Not just in knowledge, but wisdom. There's a difference between knowing things and understanding things. A person who has wisdom is able to take knowledge and able to understand things that are central versus peripheral. Able to put together things in proper arrangement, proper order, and with a proper interpretation. As Jesus is growing in wisdom... Um, and, and his wisdom in the realm in which he lived, that, that wisdom was, was biblical wisdom. He was saturated in, in Hebrew tradition. He was saturated in Hebrew Torah. He saturated in, in, in Hebrew scriptures. This is, and in community where they talked about Yahweh and they talked about the feast and they talked about the future. He was, he was learning wisdom, the normal ways that we learn, but with proper centers. The word used to describe him is that he was somebody of immense understanding at 12 years of age. Now, in, in Jerusalem, when Jesus is 12, that may be astonishing, but it's not a threat. But by the time Jesus turns 30, um, 
He is going to be a formidable force to be reckoned with when it comes to understanding the truth. You read the Gospels and you realize that, that all of the best minds of the day, when Jesus was in his 30s, come to him with questions. They try and tie him up in knots and at every turn, Jesus turns the tide to the point where pretty soon the best minds of the day say, this is later in life, don't ask him any more questions. He had the ability, the insight to understand false religion, to see oppression of man-made religion. He could see through all the garbage that had been added on to the Old Testament and see right to the heart what's at the center and what's not at the center. And that's why he was such, such a force to be reckoned with and why he became an enemy of the leadership. He grew in wisdom and it you know, if you transition to the God side, you realize not only did he grow in wisdom, uh, at the end of the day, he became the embodiment of wisdom. In him, all the treasures of wisdom are hidden. Well, he grew in wisdom. In another sense, that connects us to his humanity. He's an example as well as the center. Um, we want to grow in wisdom, or you should. You can't really live life properly set on the fear of God in marriage, parenting, work life, emotional life, without wisdom. Wisdom is that ability to understand the difference between that which is central and that which is peripheral, um, and how in particular to apply truth to specific situations. How do we grow in that wisdom? Well, the same way Jesus did. Um, We saturate ourselves in the biblical traditions of coming to the Lord's Supper. Um, At least that's what we should do. Saturate ourselves in in the gospel. Saturate ourselves in the word of God. Saturate ourselves in a community of people, as Jesus did, that we can dialogue and talk with about the things of God. And as we do, we learn how better to apply the gospel in our lives to specific situations of life. That's wisdom. Now, I would really like it, and so would you, if you could just, like one of those lights where you just pull the chain and boom, the light goes on, you just like, wisdom, now I know how to parent my child. Unfortunately, that's not how it works. And it didn't work that way in Jesus' time either, in Jesus' own life. Like, we learn wisdom as God takes truth and forges it into life through common experience. Then we learn, oh, okay. That was true in his life, that's true in our life. Part of the humanity that we see. He also progressed in his humanity, in his own relationship with God, his own sense of sonship, if you will. He says right here in verse 49, this is the statement, right? He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jewish people in Jesus' day weren't, weren't used to talking about Yahweh as my personal father. But here Jesus, at the age of 12, already recognizes he has a unique relationship with the father that no one else has, that he is by implication, the son of God. Now, some people out there may say that um, Jesus understood that when he was born. I think that goes against the grain of what it means to be human. Again, I'm, I'm pushing hard on one side of this mystery called the God-man. That he had to go through the process of self-discovery like the rest of us do. He had to study scriptures, and at some point, he comes to this growing realization that he is, in fact, the son of God. I mean, that's implication. My father's house, 
implied, the reverse, I am the son of God. And that's one of the main themes of Luke. We've already heard it twice in chapter 1. Son of the Most High and Son of God. This just continues the theme. Jesus is 12 years old in the temple. And he, he's self-aware that God is my Father. But understand, that's something he grows into. In the same way that you and I have, have been granted a relationship with God. Um, if, you, if you have faith in Christ and the Spirit of God resides in you, you're one of his. And we have a relationship. But that relationship is, is, is meant to grow and grow and grow. It's, it's not just a... I'm probably telling you something that you already know, but, but boy, we become so impatient sometimes of, of knowing God, not recognizing. You know, we come to know him um, over the process of life, of walking with him. I'm still getting to know things about my dad I never knew. Uh, last summer, I, I found out my dad was given up by his mom to his grandmother when I was, he was two. I'm like, Dad, like, so how did you feel about your mom giving you away at two? I... And my dad said, I was devastated. He says, I've dealt with the whole rejection thing. And, and I came to the realization. Now, now I understand a little bit more of why my dad is the way he is. Because he's had to go through so many hurdles in his life. And the fact of the matter is God, our father, is, 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 is massive. It, takes a, it will take eternity to really fully get to know him. But that's part of the, of the process of, of getting to know him over time in a very real way. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him. And that's what the process of time and experience does, doesn't it? Like I said, well, it's one thing to say, I know that God is faithful. That's a, it's a proposition out there. It's a statement of truth. I know God is faithful because the word says he's faithful. But then to come to know that by way of real experience when God takes you through a valley and all of a sudden you're like going, is he faithful? Here's the truth stated. Here's the darkness. Is he faithful? And when in those times he proves himself in real experience that he was faithful to you along the way, then you can say, I know God is faithful. Difference, that's a relational knowledge. I know he's faithful. So that we can sing songs like Great is Thy Faithfulness, not as simply a song to sing, but as a knowledge expression from the heart. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. That's what we want to know relationally. And that takes time and it takes experience. And that's part of what God is teaching us on our journey as he taught Jesus on his journey. Hebrews says that Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering. Somehow he was completely, though perfect human, at the same time he had to learn obedience over time through suffering. In the same way that we learn who God is in terms of a relational heart knowledge as God impresses the truth in upon us as we experience the difficulties of life. Then we just come to, like I said, it's the difference between saying, I know God is faithful versus I know my God is faithful. Same thing. That's his humanity. He had to learn that too. Unique. He's the only true son of God in the, in the, in the true sense of light of light and God of God. But in another sense, he grew into that too as he was human like the rest of us. And third... He came to an awareness of his divine purpose. At least you sense it. Again, same statement. I'm making a lot out of verse 49 because those are the first red-letter words, okay, in Luke. 
which says, why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, if you have the King James Version, it says something different. It says, about my father's business. So which is it? My father's house or about my father's business? Well, the reason it's translated in both ways is because there's a word missing in the Greek. A literal translation would be, did you not know that I must be in my father's? The next part's missing, right? In in my father's what is the question, right? Like, I'm just saying, in the original language, that, that word house isn't there. Neither is business. They have to imply from the context, what is he talking about? Because you can't just leave the Bible with, did you not know that I must be in my father's? What does that mean? Some people thought, well, it has to be placed, and so they supply the word house. And others have said, no, it's about his father's work, about his business. And, you know, I think the fact of the matter is I think both are true. About my father's business, he already senses that he's supposed to be doing something. That he has a work to do. And I don't think it's by accident that he's talking about the place or the business in Jerusalem on Passover. Right? Twelve years of age, he senses he has work to do in Jerusalem on the Passover. But not at 12 years old. 18, 19, 20, depending on exactly what year Jesus died, he would make his last pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, the same route that his mother and father took him on since he was born. He would make one final, you know, ascent into Jerusalem. He would sit down with his disciples to celebrate the Passover, you know, which God's judgment passed over the blood-lined house. Um, And he would share that Passover lamb with his disciples on Thursday night. And then on Passover proper Friday, he would not just take the Passover lamb. He would become the Passover lamb. That's the business. That's his work to be done that he would complete some couple decades later. But he's already sensing that that's God's call in his life where he would make it possible for us to be adopted as our, as our substitute, which is why his humanity is so hugely important, is that in order for us to be absolved of our sin, someone like us, someone the same as us, had to die in our place. And that was his work. You sense he's, he's sensing it already as he's growing as a human being, that this is, oh man, I'm growing, he's growing in wisdom, he's growing in his relational knowledge as the son of God, and he's growing in his understanding of his purpose in life, namely to give his life in Jerusalem on Passover to save his people from their sins. But again, it's something he had to come into. And the same is true of us. In like way, you know, sometimes we think, man, Lord really like to know what you're going to accomplish with my life. I, I feel like you have me on hold. Um, I'm doing a job that doesn't seem to be fully um, expressing all that I am for your sake. Uh, Jesus could have said the same thing. It's like after this a moment in 12, 12 years old, what did he do? He went back home to Nazareth where he would work as a carpenter for another 18 years. 
all preparation and all part of his growth process as he would go from infant to the person who would give his life for us as a human, as a person who shares our humanity. So that recognize, I guess, that, that God is at work in the process of, of our lives. Um, as we grow in wisdom, in the normal ways, there's no shortcuts. Immersing yourself in biblical truth, in biblical community. Um, of, 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 of deepening your understanding of your relationship with God and the fact that you are his son by way of Jesus too. God's purpose for your life will materialize. It is materializing. Um, that's part of the process of what it means to be human. And to recognize that is the process that Jesus went through and the process that we are in. Jesus' humanity is, is, uh, is, should be of uh, massive encouragement to us because um, not just in these ways, but in every way. Um, the fact that he, he wore our, our nature and took upon himself our nature forever is what Hebrews says. Means that there is no emotion, there is no adversity, and there is no valley that he has not felt or he has not been. There is, because he was human, there is no emotion, there is no adversity, and there is no valley where he has not been, which enables him to say, listen, I know by way of experience where you are and how you feel and can sympathize with you more than anybody else which is what makes him so trustable, is that he loved us enough to experience what we experience so that he could say, by way of experience, I know you, and I know where you are, and that's where I've been. But by the same token, because of who he is and what he's done, for those who have believed, God the Father has, to borrow Adam's phrase, He has brought the gavel down. And because of him coming as a human, um, he has said to us, by way of the death of Jesus, you are now mine. The old family relationship, where you used to be, is now gone, and you are part of my family. In the same way that those two little princesses of uh, Adam and Rochelle, they are barn graphs forever. You and I, by way of Jesus' humanity and sacrifice, we are his forever. But understand, he knows you. He knows your humanity. He knows your emotions. He knows your situation. He knows your adversity. He has been there. So as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, I just recognize when we hold the the body and the blood, that is the cup and the bread, these are symbols of his humanity. He offered his body, his human body, on behalf of us and suffered in ways that we will never suffer. So he knows us. He knows you. And he gave himself so we could be his. So let that be your meditation this morning as we celebrate the love of God that came to us in human flesh. For those who are new with us, um, after I pray, I'm going to ask the servers to come while I pray. And um, we have both gluten-free and regular bread. And uh, if you're a follower of Christ, uh, when the music starts, uh, actually just when I get done praying, if you want, come forward. There's three different uh, servers, 
and uh, pick the shortest line. And, um, and let's worship the Lord together in the taking of this ancient but biblical tradition of cup and bread. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ.